Hey everyone, welcome to the AI Education Conversation, where we talk AI, education, and everything in between. I'm Daniel Lopez. As we take this learning journey together, I invite you to join the conversation at the AI Ed Convo on Twitter. Let's jump in. back, everyone. It's been a really exciting week in the world of AI. I hope you're doing well this week. I say that because last week there were rumors floating around that the next large language model from OpenAI, GPT-4, may be released this past week, and those rumors ended up being true, which I was pretty surprised by. It, it feels like it's only been yesterday, when in actuality, I suppose it's been really since November where GPT-3 came out which is the large language model that powers the ChatGPT application, which has, you know, in many ways already begun revolutionizing a lot of spaces and a lot of the way that people do work across a lot of industries and been really disruptive. And now we got the next iteration of it, which should be very interesting. So according to OpenAI, GPT-4 is improved across the board, including its knowledge performance. It's supposed to be more limited in its capacity to have hallucinations, but you know, of course, still acknowledging that those are still coming up and those happen. And they've done a lot of work to reduce biases. You know, all of these things, of course, relative to GPT 3.5, which was the API large language model that they had uh, in place for ChatGPT and some of the other things that they were doing before that. What also made this really interesting is that according to OpenAI, GPT 3.5 was capable of passing, you know, multiple standardized tests. And in particular, it was able to pass a simulated uh, bar exam, like a lawyer bar exam, but it was only able to do so in the bottom 10% of test takers. While GPT-4, on the other hand, apparently is able to do so in the top 10% of test takers. They have this really interesting graphic and a lot of information in a white paper that they posted on their website, which I will be posting on our AI Ed Combo Twitter page, really showing GPT-4's capability of passing a lot of actually high volume standardized tests with like really, really good scores, you know, related to a lot of the education exams um, on the K-12 and the brief higher ed side, I did see that it was passing many AP exams, bio, government, economics, some of those with scores of four to five. But I did actually notice that it, it was only it was not passing the AP English exam. It was only able to score a two. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And it was also able to pass the LSAT, which is the entrance exam for to uh, attend law school. It was able to pass that at an 88th percentile. So there's a really interesting graphic. There's a multitude of maybe about 25 standardized exams there. Would definitely invite you to dig into that uh, deeper. But I thought that was very interesting. What I also found interesting is that they are doing these training and fine-tuning of the GPT-4 model across a vast variety of different languages. And so what I had mentioned in previous episodes, that the possibility of using AI to bridge the gap between education schools and some of the different uh, communities that we serve, and maybe we don't have the language base, you know, AI really is building their capability and capacity to be able to do that. They found that, you know, in doing some of this training and fine-tuning across 26 languages, Across those languages, they perform relatively similar on some of these standardized tests, even though there is there's a little bit of variance there, but they were performing relatively similar across 26 languages. 
some of the highest performers, as you can imagine, were English plus some of the Romance languages, English, Italian, Spanish, etc. German did also perform pretty high. That's been very interesting. I think the other very interesting piece that I mentioned around GPT-4, which was rumored last week and has proven to be true, is that GPT-4 is multimodal, right? And so now instead of just like what we've seen with ChatGPT, you're entering a question or, or, or a prompt and you're receiving a written prompt. Now you can actually potentially interact with it in a multi multimodal ways. And so let me kind of give you some examples of, of what this looks like. And again, this the fact that this is multimodal is not necessarily new within the context of AI, right? There's a lot of applications that have been built out there, either leveraging Chad OpenAI's API of GPT 3.5 or folks who have their own uh, large language models that have built multimodal. But this is interesting that now OpenAI has built their first multimodal kind of like function with GPT-4. But here's just to give you an example of what I mean by that. Let me let me kind of highlight a few examples here. In the demo for this application, uh, OpenAI's Greg Brockman, he actually showcased the usage where he took a picture of kind of like an idea that he'd sketched out in the sketchbook. And I did retweet this on our Twitter. If you need to see the visual, it will help a little bit more to understand what's going on. But he took this picture of a sketch he'd written out in a notebook for like kind of a website design that he had thought of. He had called it like bigjoke.com or something like that. And he had kind of like built out a user interface for what he thought it could look like. And he took a picture of it and he essentially said, you know, chat GPT or GPT-4 help, right? Like help make this together. What are some of the ingredients that are missing from this? And the response that GPT-4 gave was it essentially built out like a, the first page, the title page, if you will, of this website based on the sketch that he had. So that was pretty cool. That was something I obviously you can't do with ChatGPT. It, it allows you to function across different visuals and, and uh, different planes now, which I thought was really interesting. So being able to ask GPT-4 for support on particular pieces. So if, you, you know, if you're an ideator or someone in your role and you're, you have certain pieces of something or of a project or an idea or a product, and you're like, hey, what can I do with, with these pieces? It seems to have quite a bit of strength and talent to support on that particular end. There's also a lot of examples of folks who've been using GPT-4 to go from concept to actual fully function product as it relates to iPhone apps and different kind of websites. There was this blog post going around this week about a guy who was able to create the, um, the old school game Pong on chat, or excuse me, GPT-4. It's going to take some time to get used to that on GPT-4 within 60 seconds. So he was able to kind of get the code and everything to create that game in 60 seconds, which I thought was relatively astounding as well to be able to do that in less than a minute. GPT-4 can also understand the context of visual jokes, which is really interesting in memes. So, you know, for our, uh, us millennial Gen Zers, uh, Gen Zers, you know, memes, jokes, especially those things, that that's our love language. So being able to have a space to interact, get, engage those, I can imagine some folks in, especially the Gen Z uh, generation, just using it to create some pretty funny memes. But anyways, in the within the demo itself, they were showing this example of how they uploaded a picture of a VGA cable. And mind you, VGA, just for context, is that's kind of like the one of those old school um, power uh, projector cables that has the, the very thick blue end on it. And it has kind of those two little like rods that you would use to tighten and secure the, the VGA when you were plugging it into like a projector or something, right? So that's the cable. And it showed that cable with like an iPhone cord within it plugged into an iPhone charging it. That was kind of the, the meme that it was showing. Obviously, the idea there that, you know, you're using kind of archaic technology to power like new technology. And 
So there's some, you know, there's some humor and irony within that image, but it actually showed how they uploaded the picture and they essentially asked GPT-4, like, hey, why is this funny? And it was able to kind of break down and analyze why the why the the image was funny, what was the irony kind of behind the image. And so I have not had the opportunity yet to really dig in and play around with it. This is actually available currently in two different capacities. So they have released the API. So if you are building out your own product or website, you can obviously leverage GPT-4 within your products for the, you know, the rate that they have or for Chat GPT plus members, which is the, the paid subscription plan for OpenAI that they have, they have mentioned that they've released it in, in limited capacities for folks on Chat GPT plus. I think when they say limited capacities, they more so mean in terms of usage, not in terms of what it can do. So I'm definitely planning on digging into this further in, in future episodes here, but wanted to just share that update. That was huge news across a lot of social media platforms and just circles that I've been engaging with recently. Well, that being said, I mean, we have another great episode today, and I'm really, really excited to introduce today's guest. Today, we had a fantastic conversation with Spencer Burroughs. And so Spencer Burroughs, he is a, an 11th grade dean and a teacher and faculty at Pacific Ridge School in California. And he's also a higher ed professor with two uh, national universities. So Spencer and I, we crossed paths because I was you know, just doing, uh, continuing my learning journey, being able to share some great insights on, uh, you know, as a part of the AI education conversation and deepening my own understanding of AI, how it intersects with education. And I saw two fantastic articles, both in EdWeek, as well as uh, Chalkbeat that Spencer had been featured in related to his experiences using AI in his classroom. What was so valuable about the conversation uh, with Spencer and what I took away from it is just his very ex specific experiences as, you know, a teacher in the classroom teaching politics, debate, economics, and, you know, other spaces that he has working with students across his higher ed and uh, high school spaces, and just his experiences as a practitioner using some of these tools and to enhance his, his the experience for students in the classroom. The second thing that I have been wondering about and continuing to grapple with tremendously is this idea of how the AI growth trajectory is going to compare to the social media growth tra trajectory, right? We obviously saw over the last you know, 10 to 15 years how social media started from MySpace to where we are today and the pros and the, the negative effects that social media has had on our society. And I'm very, very curious to just hear from folks who may be able to contribute to that question and give us a sense of what the growth trajectory for something like AI may look like given from the seat that I hold and the experiences that I've seen, it seems to be growing much faster in particular, the fact that Spencer is uh, a politics teacher, he's an expert in law as well and has, has a law degree. So he, he really just has a tremendous amount of expertise in education and law. What I was very curious about is how he thought AI could hurt or help civic education, much in the way that I was curious about how social media might help or hurt civic education. That being said, we had a great conversation, really excited to uh, allow you to listen to the conversation today with Spencer and just hear your thoughts on the AI at Combo on Twitter. So if you have any reactions to today's episode, if you've been able to play around with GPT-4 and you have some exciting prompts you'd like to share with our community, please feel free to do so on the tr uh, Twitter. That being said, let's jump on in. Welcome, Spencer. How are you doing today? Welcome. I'm doing well. Uh, we just finished up class, so here we go. Oh, I know you're you're in the, the decompression phase, but also right in the high of the, the weekend ahead, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, thanks again, I mean, for joining the AI education conversation. Really, really excited to elevate your perspective in this space. And, um, you know, our paths crossed a little bit because I was able to see a, a couple of 
very interesting and captivating, uh, I think, posts you've written around your experiences using AI in your classroom. And I'm really excited to dig into that today. Uh, but before we, I think, get far too far into that, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about your just experience in education and how you got here. I noticed just in looking a little bit at your background, you transitioned from a career in law to education. You've been in the field now for look like over 20 years. And I'm just curious, how'd you end up here? Sure. So Daniel, thank you for having me. And the short story is I taught for a year before law school. And then I started law school up in San Francisco. I knew when I was in law school that I wanted to use my law degree to work with schools and school systems. And so after graduating and getting my law degree, I went ahead and got my teaching credential and then returned to Los Angeles and started working with charter schools down there. And so I taught for a bit and I helped launch a school in South LA. And then now I'm down in the San Diego area. What I find really interesting is it sounds like you've really had the the macro perspective on education. You've really been able to see what it takes to kind of build a skill at a high level. Some of these like more operational type things that educators don't often get the chance to see. And obviously, you know, the real, the real kind of how the sausage is made with the pr practitioner experience in the classroom. So, and then being able to see a lot of different school systems and how those operate, I would imagine like all of those things are kind of coming together and, and uh, just your experience daily. So I'm curious to hear how, you know, you've had these two decades of experience, all of these things, you, you've, you obviously know so much about education in the landscape, and then you have something like AI, ChatGPT in particular, in the last three months, which at least for me felt like a total monkey wrench thrown into like what I thought I knew about education and technology and where we actually were. And I'm just curious to hear a little bit, you know, since, since that has happened, you've also written, you know, two great articles just about your experience in education on EdWeek and uh, Chalkbeat, which I will definitely post in, you know, the show notes for today's episode. So folks get a chance to read it. Um, but I'm just curious to hear like, since with this emergence of AI and technology, like what have you learned of what's coming up for you and what have been maybe your, your general reactions to, to everything happening? What really prompted me to write those articles is we see something happen over and over in education, which is when a new technology comes in, it seems like the community immediately divides into half. And there's half that thinks this is the, the best thing since sliced bread and it's going to save education. It's a silver bullet solution. And the other camp that thinks this is terrible and it's going to ruin things and it has to be banned. Yeah. And I think the take-home message is it's never those two camps. It's somewhere in the middle. And I think technology always has to be treated as a tool and you use it when it's useful and you don't use it when it's not. That sounds kind of basic, but I think a great example on that end is Nearpod. And I don't know how much you might have been used Nearpod, but it's basically an add-on to, to Google Slides almost in a PowerPoint type form. So Nearpod was very useful during remote learning when we had students at home on Zoom, maybe even a, a hybrid setup for some students in the classroom. But the point was that Nearpod engaged students through the slides and there was discussion boards. It was a beautiful tool and it, it really was very, very useful during that remote learning phase. And I, I put a lot of effort into making these very drawn out Nearpod presentations for econ and some others. And when we were back in school the next year, full on, I tried using Nearpod again and, and the students hated it because we were finally back in person. They, they wanted to interact with each other face to face, which I understand. The point is Nearpod was a great tool in that remote learning. And then it just wasn't the year after. So 
I think you have to be flexible enough to recognize when something's working and when it's not. And so to transition over to what we're seeing right now with AI, I think AI is a tool. And uh, I don't think it's either going to save education or ruin education. And a lot of the initial reaction I was hearing in the ed space was largely in those two camps. And then we can talk more later about other industries and, and those reactions to it, because I, I, I see a lot of similarities. But I want to kind of cut through the noise with with some of the things I was observing to the extent that I think it could be useful in the classroom and in some points where it's not. And I hope teachers have the wherewithal to recognize those two ends and, and maybe explore and experiment. And just like any other tool, if you're a good classroom teacher, you could recognize when uh, you have a good pulse on your class. And you could teach the same class to three different groups, and those lessons will look different for three different groups just because you know how to mold it to, to their needs and how they interact. So, you know, I'm, I'm sure we're going to dive into what are some possible applications in the classroom, but I think that's a take home. It's a tool, and it, and it shouldn't be seen as, as the worst thing ever or, or the savior either. I think that's such an interesting take. And one thing I would affirm, and like what you said, is from, I would say this, this perspective too comes more from non education outsiders. I've heard this fear of something like AI being able to somehow replace the teacher. I think your exact example proves as to why, at least in the short term, I don't know what AI is going to look like five years from now or 10 years from now, but in the short term, we're definitely not in a position where those technological pieces are going to replace because as you've said, that human element is so in in need. And I would argue just from my perspective, coming out of the pandemic, I mean, it's even more in need than even how it was before. There are so many students, I think, who are still just recovering and developing those socialization skills because they didn't have that for a couple of years. It was all virtual learning. And so I would definitely affirm what you said there from from the, the viewpoint that I see as well. I think the thing that I'm interested in hearing a little bit more of those, to your point, the practicality of how this can be actually used in the classroom and how you can make something like this work for you rather than something that's against you, right? We've seen an initial reaction from some districts just banning it outright and not even attempting to use it at all. And I, and I would still hold compassion for that perspective because I understand that the innovation timeline for schools works a little bit differently than it does for businesses and other places. Summer is when we do planning in education, right? We don't do planning throughout the year. It's just tough to do that with everything else that we hold. But that being said, one perspective that is also coming up quite a bit is that folks are concerned that potentially over-relying on AI tools is actually going to take away some of the thinking for students in the classroom. And I know that I came out initially in strong opposition to that. And you've provided some really great examples in your post as well that I would encourage folks to read. And I'd love for it to just hear more around how you think AI can be used as a tool to actually promote deeper level thinking for students in the classroom. When I started hearing about ChatGPT and it was it was all over the news, and it was being talked about in a couple different ways, my mind immediately went to what might be a practical application in the classroom. And so I got on and I started playing around with it. And I was experimenting with it, mostly in the context of like, how could I put this into one of my lessons tomorrow? Without having planned that lesson for ChatGPT, again, utilizing it as a tool, not making the lesson around ChatGPT, but how could I use ChatGPT within the lesson that existed and something that I noticed is it seemed to me everything chat GPT does, we can already do on the internet. And what I mean by that is 
I started putting in some some searches or asking GPT some questions. And what you notice is the answer it gives often seems like the top three paragraphs from the top three Google hits that would come up anyway. So it's almost a mishmash of that. It's more entertaining to watch ChatGPT flow this thing down, almost like it, it's coming up with it on its own. But you have to recognize it's not doing anything that we can't already do. And I think that really ties back to the question, well, okay, how can we use it in the classroom and how can students utilize it? Well, it, it's basically doing those Google searches a little bit faster and maybe a little bit more efficiently. So to the question of you know, how can you use it in lessons and how can you push it forward, a couple of the things that, that I mentioned in my article that I think might be useful, you know, we're always looking for ways to engage students in content in ways that, that they find engaging or they find interesting. And so in my U.S. history class, we just finished the reconstruction. And like I explained in my article, I asked ChatGPT, what is the reconstruction? It gave us a paragraph, two paragraph explanation. I would have the students go back and, and edit that. And from a critical eye, think, you know, almost testing their own knowledge, okay, based on what they've already learned about the reconstruction, where did ChatGPT get it right? Where could it have gotten it better? So, you know, there's the content end. They're looking at what we're talking about right there in that lesson and that, that point in history. but the critical analysis skills are, are almost more important, I would think. The exercise of going back and trying to recognize where things are accurate, where it could have been more accurate. I mentioned it lightly in the article, but I, I think a whole different discussion is, you know, the problem with students doing research today, as opposed to when we would hit the stacks in the library back when we were in school, is that there's too much information on the internet. And one of the main skills they have to learn is, how do you best go through that information and figure out what is credible, what is not, what's accurate? It's a whole different inquiry. And I think that's a skill that they're going to carry with them or that they need to carry with them into whatever line of work they end up with after college, whatever the path might be. So, you know, using ChatGPT as a tool to better focus on critical analysis skills, I think that's a great use. Um, I talked a little bit about speech and debate training and the fact that in some forms of debate parliamentary I was talking about in particular in the high school tournaments students have to think a lot on their feet and they have to respond in time and almost like practicing your throwing by by throwing a baseball against the wall out on the play yard we would ask chat gpt questions and it would give us answers in real time and I would ask the students to then respond to those answers in real time so I mean I, I saw it as a a useful sparring partner of sorts. So I think there's some interesting applications on that end, but ChatGPT is not doing anything new that we couldn't really do before. So as teachers are maybe considering how can I incorporate these in the lessons, instead of planning a whole lesson around ChatGPT or expecting ChatGPT to somehow elevate a lesson that wasn't really working before, I think rather consider it as a a value added or as a plus. Okay. I, I can take that introduction that I already had a plan, throw in ChatGPT and and that might make the the activity a bit more interesting and give them something to work with in real time. But again, being flexible and knowing how your students respond to different activities is probably crucial. Yeah, to your point, I mean I think that 
a lot of the initial, uh, you know, concerns and, and reactions I heard to this is, well, with chat GPT and tools like AI, it's the death of the essay, right? Like we're no longer going to be writing essays or things like that anymore. And I'm like, well, in certain capacities that could be true. However, uh, to your point, creation is not the only higher level, deep level skill that we should be teaching students how to think about, especially, you know, I love uh, the, the point that you brought up, which I hadn't thought too much about, which is, you know, the society, society as a whole is really moving as we know to this hyper information economy. And it's only rapidly developing further where we acknowledge that data information is the new currency. And so in a world where those things are being developed so fast, our children, our students are going to have to have different skill sets and navigate and interact with uh, information in a different way that we did. So I just love that point. It was something that I hadn't thought too much about, but I totally agree that the they now are going to need to be experts at curation versus creation. We've spent a little bit of time here talking quite a bit about how you can bring it into the classroom and lessons in particular. But I'm also curious to hear, you know, when, when some of these tools came out, how did it impact your school community more broadly? And how has it changed your day-to-day -day at all beyond uh, the, in the class, has it changed any other aspects of how you would go about your day-to-day? -day? Sure. So I'll take those questions in part to the first question. What's been the reaction with the greater school community? It's been mixed and it kind of fell on the same lines that I was describing before. You know, I think this has to be seen in the context of one of the running narratives during remote learning and then right afterward was with students spending so much time online, is that making plagiarism easier now that we're back in hybrid and then back full? That's kind of been on everyone's minds. And so I, I, I don't blame some teachers who were seeing this as a, a mechanism to maybe facilitate cheating, for lack of a better word, uh, a little bit easier. And the push I'm going to have on that end is I think this draws us back to a fundamental question. And this is something I really try to drive home with my student teachers that I oversee teaching at National University is you have to be very careful and deliberate how you're making assessments. And so if we're talking about formative versus summative assessments, are you concerned about ChatGPT helping students cheat on a homework you were just going to give credit for anyways? I, I don't know if that, that's such a big concern. For summative assessments where they're getting a serious grade, let's say for writing, that surely is a consideration. And I think that brings us back to the question of how are you framing those assessment questions so that students aren't going to cheat with it? I mean, you can bounce these questions off ChatGPT and you can see the response in the article I wrote for EdWeek. I try to lay out some ways where there's ways to phrase questions to essentially ChatGPT is not going to be super helpful with that, if that's what you're really concerned about. So I'm trying to see the, the glass half full perspective that rather than simply knocking it down because it seems scary, I think there's ways to manage it and, and deal with it. On the writing end, something interesting that I've seen that I want to explore a little bit further is I've been hearing for a number of college professors, because you have to imagine at the college level, they're just as concerned, if not more concerned about chat GPT. And some colleges have tried to ban it. Not sure how that's going to work. But in any case, some college professors <laughs> are asking the legitimate question, is it worth my time to assign a, a 10 page term paper, 20 page term paper, whatever the length is, because apparently these can be doctored to a certain degree by, by chat GPT. And I think some, some professors are coming to the conclusion that Maybe that's not worth it. Like, what am I really trying to get out of that paper? What is the skill? Stamina? Maybe there's something there. But aside from that, 
Are you trying to assess researching and citation skills? You don't need 20 pages to do that. Is it content knowledge? Same thing. I don't know if you need 20 pages. So there might be a trickle down effect because something I definitely see here in California, and I'm sure it's, it's true in most places, that a lot of what we look at at standards in high school is based on expectations for college. And so sometimes things don't change at the high school and then to middle school level, unless they change in college, I think if a lot of college professors start changing how they're assigning papers, maybe that would influence teachers here. Maybe we need to rethink how we're assigning papers. And let's be honest, if you've experimented with the writing functions in ChatGPT, the writing it's producing is not great writing. If you're trying to cheat your way to a C, <laughs> that's a whole different yeah. issue. But um, I, I would I would argue if, if you're a, a teacher who's been paying close attention to your students' writing, you're going to be able to tell pretty quick if a student just submitted an essay that was from ChatGPT and, and not their own. Which, I, again, I, I was having this discussion with an English teacher who, maybe more in the context of an English assignment, a student was assigned to write a 10-verse poem, and ChatGPT spits it out. That student could have gone online and read 10 different poems and kind of had it in their head and done the same function. So again, it, it's not really opening up new doors that weren't there before. Maybe it makes it a little bit easier, but again, something to work with. I want to make sure that I don't lose sight of like two, I think, really interesting points that you've brought up that I've also thought about, which is, and I know that this is a point you also made in, I think, your um, one of your blog posts around like the misuse, which we'll dive a little bit into further in a second here, but the prompt matters so much. If you put a vague prompt, you're going to get a vague response. And to your point, you you see some of these students or some folks putting in a question like, create an essay on the reconstruction area, as you've described. And if it's that vague, you're going to get a pretty broad response. And it's going to be very easy for a teacher to see that and see like, this, is, this looks like something that was pulled off Wikipedia, right? Or something like that. And yeah, syntax wise, it looks correct. The sentences are you know simpler, maybe reasonably complex sentences, but you can tell that it wasn't written by somebody who really put some creative thought and elements into it. And so whether it's in putting some of that creative element into the prompt itself or into the actual writing of it, you can really tell when someone has put more intentionality behind the the production of that. So I, I think you're absolutely right on that regard. I think the other point that I'm holding on to, and maybe this is this is where you and I are coming at, at it from a little bit of a different angle. And I'm curious to hear your reaction to this, but to the point that you said earlier, that's why I personally think that AI may not actually just be a tool. The point that you made earlier is that in many ways, the fact that AI is like coming into classrooms and, you know, like it's a conversation that many of us are having in many ways, it is forcing in particular higher ed professors to interrogate whether or not they should even be doing this assignment, even be doing this, this homework, um, or, you know, even be doing a certain practice this way. From my perspective, I really think that's why AI has the potential to be something that fundamentally transforms education. But what I'm also very cautious about is that I think education and the way that we have done things both on the K to 12 side and on the higher ed side are very routine, very conventional and very bureaucratic, right? They've, we've done these things and organized our systems in, a, in, in certain ways for a very long time. Of course, there's kind of outliers, you know, that have been able to innovate and do things differently from that. And I think my example for that in many ways is the pandemic, where I felt like initially a lot of educators did think that there was going to be absolutely fundamental uh, school transformation coming through the pandemic season. And in some ways there was, right, where there was a drastic increase of technology expansion. I think in some districts there was blended learning. 
there was, you know, at least on the higher ed side, there was an expansion of test optional policies. But what I've observed probably in the last 12 to 18 months here is a lot of schools are returning back to the practices that they had but before we were in the height of the pandemic. And I'm concerned that if whether or not AI will be treated the same way, where there's kind of this initial little bump of maybe reaction, and then we're, we kind of stay right back into the center of business as usual. And I'm you know, just curious to hear your take on that. That's a really good point. And I think on some level, it comes down to what's the teacher's attitude to begin with. Like I know a lot of teachers who are constantly looking for new ways to integrate new ideas. And it doesn't always have to be technology. And the running joke for a long time was that you know it had to be STEAM focused to, to change anything. And you would get steamrolled if it wasn't something to do with STEAM. And it's just the point that there's other ways to innovate in the classroom. <laughs> it doesn't have to be technology, right? So this happens to be a technology. It does something kind of cool. There, there probably are some uses. But the school I'm at right now, Pacific Ridge School, is very discussion-based, Harkness discussions. I think there's creative ways that I kind of outlined to, to integrate the integrated chatbot into that. But I don't think anything replaces just having a good conversation in the classroom, almost like college seminar style. So to your point about disrupting education in the pandemic. There was an interesting quote early on from a, a college dean. and He was saying, changes that would have taken 10 years just happened in 10 weeks because we all had to adapt and all of a sudden we're on Zoom. We learned what a breakout room was. I mean, all these things happened at a moment's notice and, and we had to just because that was reality. I hope teachers that kept an open mind throughout the pandemic started to notice some things that worked and some things that didn't. And Almost in the way that it seems like AI, I mentioned assessments, I hope AI makes teachers at least more closely examine how they're assessing. Teachers that I would consider had a successful experience during the pandemic are ones that kept an open mind and, and made them think, you know, well, I had to change my lesson since we're going remote and now we're all in Nearpod, at least I was. But it made you think looking at what you did before, okay, some of that was useful, some of it wasn't. It's almost like classroom management practices. Some of it you learned from your supervising teacher when you were a student teacher. Some you know from other people, some things you did out of convenience. I think it's important to stop every once in a while and kind of take a gut check and think, are these things working? Are they still working? Should I still continue? The idea that to be an effective teacher, you have to be a lifelong learner and you have to be constantly bettering your craft. I think this is kind of in the, the same mold. So. You asked a little bit before, has AI changed the day-to-day -day in school? Not substantially, I would say. I mean, again, it's a tool, almost like when we put calendars on our phones and that made things a little bit easier. Sure. So I, I'm interested to see where it, where it goes from here for sure. But something you mentioned before about schools kind of changed during remote and now some seem to be sliding right back to what it was before. Again, I, I kind of think it's a mindset. And Education is a very large bureaucracy and it's slow moving. And I appreciate when, when schools and departments and individual teachers have the mindset that they're always looking for ways to, to push the boundaries of what might be new and interesting and, and innovative and, and really trying to learn from each other. No, I totally agree with that point. I think when you have a teacher who can really lean into a lot of those social emotional skills, in some ways, entrepreneurial skills that we are encouraging students to adopt, embrace, practice things such as taking risks, things such as always learning, being reflective, adopting feedback, being able to model that. I, very similar to you, have no doubt that 
that just leads to a very transformative classroom that leads students to really having some trust and uh, believing in that relationship and believing too that that teacher is authentic. And we know that authenticity, authenticity is like the most important factor you need to have in your classroom. If you're not authentic, your, your, your kids are going to read that out and <laughs> so fast and they're going to challenge you <laughs> and at, at every step of the way. I, I would love to also explore a little bit the usage of technology, in particular AI, as it relates to civic education. And now I know that, you know, in your particular classroom, you teach a lot of contents, you know, related to civic education. You're, you're teaching economics, uh, politics, debate, some of these subjects. And I'm curious to just hear whether or not you think AI will help or hurt civic education. It, you know, like the last big technological wave, I think we saw as a society, I would argue, social media. And over kind of like the last decade, we saw social media initially, you know, everybody was excited. It was a great tool of connecting folks, bringing people together. I think social media also had a really cool power of elevating stories and challenges across the world that you may not have heard of otherwise, right? Based on like a pretty limited news cycle. I think now we're starting to see one of the big challenges with social media is it takes some of the polarization that occurs like in this the uh, news outlets and it like puts it even more extreme because folks are really able to just like live in certain channels of interest, certain echo chambers of interest. And that's kind of how I think that technology has evolved. I'm wondering if you think based on what you know about AI and just generally your, your take on this, do you think AI can help or hurt civic education? Is it too early to tell? Uh, where do you kind of stand on that? I'll address the potential downsides first. And some of the potential downsides I see is, again, almost similar to making a Google search. If, if you have a student who's trying to expand their knowledge and they ask a, a particular question to chat GPT, something civics related, let's just say one end of the political spectrum or another, chat GPT is going to spit out an answer that, again, it, it essentially collated from different sources on the internet, that answer might be accurate and it, and it might not. So on the positive end, kind of like we were discussing before critical thinking, I would hope that student then, assuming this is something they haven't heard before or, or they're not that well-versed on, I would hope that they then go and do some independent research and see how accurate was that response, knowing that ChatGPT pulled it from all different areas and not just accept it as truth. Because obviously I do see a problem with okay, maybe that answer that ChatGPT spit out is somewhat flawed. Maybe it's totally flawed. And I think the problem would be accepting that is, is true, especially if it pertains to some, some kind of political issue. So that's definitely a downside. In terms of positives, anything that will engage students in the democratic process or make them more interested in learning how that functions, I always think is positive. So Similar to how I was using ChatGPT as a sparring partner for debate, I think it would be great to use it. All these different issues we're debating on the, the national level, right? Something happening with Congress or the president or any of these arguments, I think it would be interesting to take ChatGPT and ask ChatGPT to argue either side of that, which again, I, I think it could, depending what issue we're talking about, throw out some interesting points on either. And something I always try to drive home with my students is you've got to consider both sides. If that's your use of that tool, I do think that's positive. I mean, I need to give the plug that I'm very interested in, in civics education myself. And I interned for the governor when I was in college. I worked for a city attorney's office. So 
I like seeing all those levels and I, I really do like getting students involved. And I think when it comes to civics, one of the best ways to get them interested is to get them literally involved in that process. Here in Carlsbad, we've been able to team up with our local city council members and have our students intern with those city council members. And I, I need to say, my internship at the governor's office taught me way more about politics than it did in, in any class. Right? I'm a poli-sci minor at UCLA. So civics education definitely does not stop in the classroom or with the chat bot or whatever. I took my students up to Sacramento to, to advocate with their local lawmakers. We were advocating for increased community college funding in the state budget. And if that was the narrow focus of that visit, I think the better learning point is they learned how to communicate with elected officials. They got to see Sacramento up close and how it actually works. So to me, that, that's the real, the real learning. So ChatGPT is a tool. I think it could help facilitate civics learning. I hope that it doesn't negatively affect it by spewing out some random things that are slightly accurate or, or unfortunately untrue. But again, that, that's kind of the, that seems to be one of the larger issues we're facing right now, period. People posting things on social media that are totally slanted or just not true. It seems to be a, a bipartisan consensus around the fact that social media has driven the narrative in just two wildly different directions. That's not helpful. So I hope that any evolution in these chatbots, including ChatGPT, are that users can can use it to facilitate more critical thinking and not just simply drive that polarization. I love I love your story too about Carlsbad and the students you were taking there because to your point, I mean that's that exact story right there is exactly why AI and technology can't replace educators and they can't replace opportunities for students to be able to go to a real place, have a real experience in a field that they could potentially explore and do it. I just as a Quick anecdote, I had a similar experience when I was in college. I studied political science as well. And I also had an internship with the governor. And for me, though, I had a little bit of a different journey where seeing uh, some of the kind of like the members on the House floor having a conversation made me realize I didn't want to pursue that in the future. It made me realize education is exactly where I want to be, where I can create social change and not have to do it that way. And so it's kind of funny how we both, but to your point, that exposure is so critical. Having that experience, being able to see how things actually go down and having that real life experience. You can't read about it in a book. You got to be able to live it sometimes and do that. And that's even having some of this technology can't fully create that. Can't fully create the moment of you walking there with your peers, having a real conversation with somebody in a new way and being out of your, your school building. You've mentioned this a couple of times and I know too, you just, you alluded to the fact that misuse, right? We have to be uh, protecting our students and teaching them how to ensure that they are not misusing these AI tools. For you, what do I, and, I, and I know that you wrote a blog post about this and you've mentioned it a little bit. What does that mean to you? When you say misuse, what are some very concrete steps that as educators or as students, we could be taking to pre prevent misuse with these types of chatbots like uh, uh, ChatGPT? Sure, I, I should preface it with, at least speaking directly to, to teachers and administrators trying to think of policies around this and, and how to treat this on a systems level. I don't think anything replaces having a robust honor code and a deep understanding with the students and, and a level of trust around how they're producing work, not cheating, not plagiarizing. With that being said, I was trying to give educators some, some concrete tools they could use, being mindful of how to avoid, hopefully, students misusing that tool. Some of the things I noticed experimenting with ChatGPT is that to make a 
a decent sounding response, ChatGPT needs to make a connection between real things. That sounds obvious, but I, I was really playing out this example, Revolutionary War that we were covering in my US history class at the time. If you gave it a question, something like, describe the Declaration of Independence, well, it's going to give you a pretty decent answer because it'll find an explanation on like just like you could have done with the Google search, describing out in kind of vague fashion what the declaration was. And, and that'll sound okay. So I think that would be a potential student misuse because they're going to grab an answer almost like they copied off of Wikipedia that's, that sounds at least halfway decent. So in terms of phrasing your questions, just speaking from my own class, I'm, I'm often assigning some kind of primary source or secondary source reading for homework students annotate it. Maybe they, they answer a couple questions about it and we use that for a discussion point in the next class. If you frame your question in terms of referencing that document, ChatGPT can't do that because they have no idea what document we're talking about. So instead of saying, if I'm going to use that same question, something around the declaration, if I said instead, on page four, what was most important about that teaching or, or something that I'm pointing to, well, ChatGPT has no idea what that is. If you phrase it like that, that, that's going to force students to go back to the document, find the information we're talking about, reflecting on it, answering it, and just the process of having to go back and find those answers and, and work with it, that's learning in and of itself. From that end, the other, the other plug I would make is because ChatGPT is reliant on, on these sources that already exist on the internet, if you ask ChatGPT to make a connection to something that, that's new or evolving, it has a lot of trouble doing that because it doesn't have enough information to collect on it. And so I had used the, the example about the conflict in Ukraine. That's ongoing right now. ChatGPT has a hard time dealing with that. To make a point to some of my, my fellow teachers, we even used ChatGPT to search our own school. And ChatGPT gave a blurb about the school that wasn't totally correct because some changes happened over the last year. So the point is, if you are more concerned about foolproofing questions or assignments against ChatGPT, uh, I think those are a couple tips. But again, from a, a system level programmatic issue, trying to catch the cheating and inform assignments that way, it, it's a constant game of whack-a-mole. And honestly, I've seen more teachers get burnt out playing that game and losing that game because you will lose in the end. It really does come down to classroom environment and trust and, and the kind of values that you're, you're pushing at your school. I know I appreciate that reflection. I think too, one, one epiphany I had when I was reading your um, Edweek post on this exact topic was when you talked about asking the chatbot to provide a text citation for the information as a follow-up every single time. And I, I, something had clicked for me where I realized, oh my gosh, I'd been interacting with ChatGPT myself quite a bit. And I had never once had asked that question. And it, I, I had not been taking things entirely at face value, but I'd been kind of putting it through, through my own internal framework of like, do I buy this? Yes or no? Doing some of that. But I'm like, why am I not? at every single question, asking that that's such an easy thing to do. It allows you to go to a very specific source. And to your point, I think really what that kind of surface for me is even as adults, right? Even as adults, as educated adults, there is going to be some, some training, some unlearning, some additional learning we have to do uh, to accommodate to some of these tools as well. It's not just going to be students and that's okay. And it's okay that we're going to be going through that process as well. So just wanted to share that. Well, I'll tell you, Daniel, it's funny. I, I found an example where I, I gave it kind of a vague question like that. And the answer it gave me 
it just started making things up about a random situation that had never happened. And <laughs> I, I, I had to laugh because it just drove home the point. This is not some super incredibly intelligent, all-knowing being. Like It is yeah. it's literally just <laughs> picking and pulling from the internet. I really am trying to demystify, especially for the teachers that are either frightened of it or hate it without trying it or whatever. It, it is not the most intelligent thing in the world. And the creator of OpenAI has said publicly, this thing is not fully ready for public consumption. Like it's not a perfect tool. Don't be afraid. Totally agree with you, right? We should not be bowing down to the the AI uh, terminators just yet, right? There's there's a lot of learning they got to do to catch up to us. And humanity, I think, is still is still top tier with with our creativity and innovation. I have a bonus question for you. I'd love to get your take on my bonus question for you is this, you know, you've been in education for a long time. You've seen a lot of different perspectives. If, if you could use AI to enhance or solve a problem just in our system today and wave your magic wand, what would you do? Daniel, that is a great question for sure. One of the main problems I'm seeing and hearing right now, this being talked about pretty loudly is the disconnect between what's being expected in college or what colleges think they expect and what's actually being taught in high school, if there's some way that we could better bridge that divide and make what they're learning in high school directly relevant or applicable to college expectations, and as I'm saying that out loud, teaching on both the high school and the college level, you know, I have to acknowledge that we're talking about two wildly different things and whatever you decide to study in college or the path you take, maybe that's different. But, you know, the complaint from a lot of students and parents is, I mean, is what I'm learning in high school going to help me in college? And of course, my answer is, well, I hope so. But along those lines, if we could better streamline that transition, if AI was somehow able to help with that, I think that would be great. That probably comes down to better coordination between those two sectors, to be fair. And the link between middle school and high school is obviously much more clear and direct than the link between high school and college. But the more that we can, we can try to bridge that, that would be great. And that, that includes community college. And I think one of the, the more disturbing statistics emerging since the pandemic is the falling, the declining enrollment in both two-year and four-year, but definitely in two-year. If there's a way to, to incentivize the students to get back into the two-year and use that as a, a launching pad to wherever they're going, that would be my hope. <laughs>